0: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Two editors were looking over their pride. The magazine cover of Overland Monthly. A cover illustration had already been chosen. It was a sketch of a growling young California grizzly bear. The mascot of the state of California which the Overland Monthly was advertising to Eastern readers. But there was something missing. As a bear, one of the editors, Mark Twain, remembered, as a bear he was a success. But it was an objectless bear, a bear that meant nothing in particular. Signified nothing, simply stood there, snarling over his shoulder, The other editor, Bret Hart, then did something that Twain thought was genius, inspiration itself. Taking a pencil, he drew two parallel lines underneath the bear's foot. The parallel lines of a railroad track. Behold, Mark Twain said, he was a magnificent success now. The ancient symbol of California savagery, snarling at the approaching type of high and progressive civilization. It was a terrific crash. The Effie Afton, a fair steamboat in the 1850's style, made its way up the Mississippi River and blows her whistle, signaling to the bridge near Rock Island, Illinois, connecting it to Davenport, Iowa. And the drawbridge is raised. The Effie Afton goes through the draw fine, yet about 200 feet after, one engine stops For some reason, the other keeps going, hurling the boat to the right and hitting a bridge span. This might have been okay, some damage, but the impact knocked over a stove in a cabin and a fire was started, which spread quickly to the deck. In five minutes, the boat was gone. The bridge too, pride of the Illinois Central Line, went down in flames. And when it burned, something strange happened. Steamboats that were in the area, did they rush to its aid? No. They cheered its destruction. For they had long harbored a grudge against this particular bridge. It was an impediment they didn't like and a source of competition too. The locomotive engines that ship product across the Mississippi River were taking business away from the steamboats. Captain Hurd of the Effie Afton sued the Rock Island Bridge Company. This bridge had long been opposed and delayed. Rock Island had been a government installation, and among those who opposed the building of a bridge across the Mississippi River was the Secretary of War during the Pierce administration, Jefferson Davis, who sent marshals to stop the construction of the bridge. But the bridge's construction did go on. In a court case that would come, the bridge company would say that the steamboat purposely rammed the bridge. This was not a normal route for the FEF, which usually operated more to the south. The boat company would say that the bridge changed the current's direction, forcing the accident. Each side was well-financed, and what's more, each side was supported politically by the two major camps might say north and south those that supported railroads and those that supported steamboats and the steamboats had a long history we talked about in the last cast about mark twain's reflection on his life in mississippi this is actually this accident is actually occurring slightly before he became a steamboat captain so he got into the game late but there was a romanticism about that the railroad company knows this And they know they're going to court and they're going to have to convince not just a judge, but a jury. And they'll need to find a lawyer who can do that. And they search through their counsels for the man who's not just good at the technical aspects of the law, but that can persuade a jury, someone with experience in politics. An ambitious former congressman, Abraham Lincoln, is a proponent of the railroad. And he takes the case for the Rock Island Company. One of the cases will put him back on the political map. By the time of the Rock Island Bridge case, he's firmly established in his railroad bona fides. As a Whig member of the Illinois legislature, he votes for early railroad charters, for railroads to be built in Illinois. Now, it takes some time. Those early railroads don't end up getting built But he continues to defend the railroad's forward movement through his state and further. He represents the Illinois Central Railroad as one of its star lawyers, defending the railroad, preserving its right not to be taxed by the county, but by the state alone. Defending its right not to have to build fences for every farm or rancher that the railroad goes through, making that the responsibility of those farmers, arguing that there's an inherent benefit that the farmers and ranchers get, from having a railroad that it benefits the whole society that it must be done look he says of all the people who have been transported west by the railroads new counties have been established while we may not obtain tax revenue for one county that exists it's creating new counties out west it's building in america he makes these cases to juries on behalf of the railroads he takes cases suing railroads too and in one well-known case, he sues the railroad for payment of his own legal fee. His fee of $5,000 is more than the president of the railroad gets, more than the governor of Illinois gets. But he gets his fee. There's some doubt as to whether that case was friendly or unfriendly. In, either words, in other words, Lincoln was very good friends with the president of the railroad. And perhaps... The railroad had a number of British shareholders who were watching their books, and perhaps they had to be sued in order to pay a fee like that. Certainly, Lincoln represents the railroad after he's collected this fee. And there's a, a story from his law partner, William Hurden, where he's counting piles of money from the railroad and says, See, William, this is what you've always wanted, going after the corporations. But for the most part, Abraham Lincoln was a pro-railroad lawyer. And he was not alone. In a previous cast, we talked about Baltimore, that bustling city created by the Maryland legislature and constructed with the muscle of German immigrants. We also talked about how the port was open to the world selling its grain. But there was an issue that started to happen in the 1820s, and that is the very eerie canal built in New York was displacing the Port of Baltimore because it did not have a connection inland. Also, there was a proposed Chesapeake and Ohio Canal that would parallel the Potomac River from Washington, D.C. to Cumberland, Maryland. Local entrepreneurs in Baltimore wanted to leapfrog New York and leapfrog Washington, D.C. They looked across the Atlantic to England. Great Britain, before America, James Watt was there, had steam engines, had locomotives. In 1828 figure arrives. It's a signer of the Declaration of Independence. In fact, it's the last surviving signer of the Declaration of Independence. Charles Carroll of Carrollton got together a group of investors, of local businessmen, to fund the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. And he himself broke its ground, a signer of the Declaration. Its objective was to connect Baltimore with the Ohio River and the West. And that would make it using this new technology better, perhaps, than the Erie Canal. But animal muscle was no match for the long distances and mountainous terrain that would have to be traveled. By 1830, the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad had extended its track from Baltimore to the village of Ellicott Mills, 13 miles to the west. The railroad was was ready to test its first steam engine. And they get an offer from an engineer, Peter Cooper of New York. So in 1830, a bright summer's day full of promise, investors and local business people and dignitaries pile on to an open car, pulled by a new contraption, which had to look strange. It it looked like almost a stove boiler That was no bigger than the operator himself. Pulling wheels, it was appropriately named Tom Thumb. Peter Cooper, the inventor, was at the controls. No one else would know how to operate such a thing at this time. Passengers were thrilled to be traveling at the end, unheard of speed of 18 miles per hour. And they get to Ellicott City, Maryland in just an hour. But on the return trip, something happens. It's the stagecoach, the Stockton stagecoach, that challenges the car to a race. Here's what John Latrobe, he's the lawyer for the B&O Railroad, here's what he said about the events of that day. The boiler of Mr. Cooper's engine was not as large as the kitchen boiler attached to many a range in modern mansions. It was about the same diameter, but not much more than half as high. It stood upright in the car and was filled above the furnace, which occupied the lower section with vertical tubes. The cylinder was but three and a half inches in diameter, and speed was gotten up by gearing. No natural drought could have been sufficient to keep up a steam in so small a boiler, and Mr. Cooper used, therefore, a blowing apparatus, driven by a drum attached to one of the car's wheels, which passed over a cord that in its turn worked a pulley on the shaft of the blower. Mr. Cooper's success was such as to induce him to try a trip to Ellicott's Mills, and an open car filled with directors and some friends, the speaker among the rest. The first journey by steam in America was commenced. The trip was most interesting. The curves were passed without difficulty at a speed of 15 miles an hour. The grades were ascended with comparative ease. The day was fine. The company in the highest spirits and some excited gentlemen of the party pulled out memorandum books and when at the highest speed, which was 18 miles an hour, wrote their names and some connected sentences to prove that even at great velocity, it was possible to write in a notebook. The return trip from the mills, a distance of 13 miles, was made in 57 minutes. But the triumph of this Tom Thumb engine was not altogether without a drawback. The great stage proprietors of the day were Stockton and Stokes, and on this occasion a gallant gray of great beauty and power was driven by them from town, attached to another car in the second track. For the company had begun by making two tracks to the mills and met the engine at the relay house on the race it's on the way back. From this point it was determined to have a race home and the start being even, away went the horse and engine, the snort of one and the puff of the other keeping time and tune. At first the grey had the best of it, for his steam would be applied to the greatest advantage on instant, while the engine had to wait until the rotation of the wheels set the blower to work. The horse was perhaps a quarter of a mile ahead when the safety valve of the engine lifted and the thin blue vapor issuing from it showed an excess of steam. The blower whistled, the steam blew off in vapory clouds, the pace increased, the passengers shouted, the engine gained on the horse and soon it lapped him, the silk was piled, the race was neck and neck, nose and nose, and then the engine passed the horse, and a great hurrah hailed the victory. But it was not repeated, for just at this time when the gray's master was about giving up, the band which drove the blower slipped from the drum. The safety valve ceased to scream, and the engine, for want of breath, began to wheeze and pant. In vain, Mr. Cooper, who was his own engine and fireman, lacerated his hands in attempting to replace the band on the wheel. In vain, he tried to urge the fire with light wood. The horse gained on the machine and passed it. And although the band was presently replaced, and steam again did its best... The horse was too far ahead to be overtaken and came to be the winner of the race. So wrote John Latrobe, his eyewitness account originally published in Personal Reflections from 1868. He's talking about the events of 1830. The railroad was all upside in the 1850s. Harriet Beecher Stowe in Uncle Tom's Cabin noted how unsophisticated places were those where there were no railroads. Ralph Waldo Emerson expresses the joy of riding the railroad. Men and trees whiz by you. The very permanence of matter seems compromised. It was an instance, riding the railroad, of natural magic. Man no longer waits for favorable gales. Oh, how the world has changed from the era of Noah to that of Napoleon. But no one puts it like the poet Walt Whitman, for whom the locomotive has now become a symbol of progress. In his poem, Locomotive in Winter, the in driving storm, even as now, the snow, the winter day declining... Thee in thy panoply, thy measured dual throbbing, and thy beat convulsive, black cylindric body, golden brass, silvery steel. See, forget that vision we might have now of these old trains, you know. You gotta remember it's the 1850s, these are new, sleek machines, the sleekest things they've seen in machine form, moving. And there aren't yet tracks everywhere. The ponderous sidebars parallel and connecting rods, gyrating, shuttling at thy sides, thy great protruding headlight. It's no coincidence that railroads will coincide with social change, bringing in settlers quickly from New England to make the Northwest Territory mostly free. Wisconsin with settlers brought by the railroad, or brought close enough by the railroad, bursts the Republican Party at a time of railroad expansion. And that many a Republican politician is funded by railroads, also by the related industries of steel and coal, of which the growing Republican Party will be supporters of tariffs for. That the 1860 platform of the Republican Party calls for a national transcontinental railroad thy train of cars behind, obedient, merely following, through gale or calm, now swift, now slack, yet steadily careening. Whitman is telling you, this is nature harnessed, this is progress in steel, this is industry put to good use. Whitman is America's greatest proponent, and here, America is stronger than nature itself. And for the Illinois lawyer, and later president, which Whitman will also capture in poems. His whole life is about those railroads. I mean, forget Twain and Hart's California Bear. You could draw a sketch of Lincoln and put those two penciled-in tracks behind him with a locomotive, perhaps. As a young Whig, he votes for state railroads, and as we discussed, secures for them the ability to travel. Type of the modern, emblem of motion and power, pulse of the continent. By day warning, the ringing bell to sound its notes. By night, thy silver-style lamp to swing. Fierce-throated beauty. Whitman is a trained partisan, as is Lincoln. Lincoln is good friends with the Illinois Central Railroad staff, one of their former councils. It funds his otherwise tiny Springfield Illinois practice he takes on for the railroad annoying shareholders who are not willing to pay their shareholders fees because the railroad decided not to build near their property he meets the future General George McClellan also and one of many Civil War generals that will make their career on the railroad McClellan writes in his memoirs a year later that he was annoyed by Lincoln telling stories all the time As they had to travel together, representing he as the engineer and Lincoln as the key lawyer, representing the railroad on cases. Roll through my chant with thy lawless music, thy swinging lamps at night, thy madly whistled laughter, echoing, rumbling like an earthquake, raising all. Law of thyself complete, thine old track firmly holding. The railroad in America is 23 miles in 1830, most of that in Baltimore, and will be 30,000 miles by 1860. 30 more years, it will be 100,000 miles, and in 1916, railroads in America will hit their peak, 250,000 miles of American Rail Track, enough to go to the moon and back. No sweetness debonair of tearful harp or glib piano vine. The thrill of shrieks by rocks and hills returned. Again, beating nature, Whitman is telling us, beating perhaps the syrupy old conventions of American history and creating an American new. The train will fulfill the hints of abolitionists, that it is part of the modern bringing abolition to America and the hints of businessmen that it will deliver change. It does these things in a sense. Maybe not as fast as anyone wants. And indeed, in the case of the F.D. Afton, the railroad had found its lawyer, and he was triumphant. Yes, he acknowledged the jury. The steamboat had romantic appeal. Yes, there was every need to go north and south, up and down the river. But the country also needed to go east and west as well, He demonstrated during this case his capacity for detail, correcting witnesses on the smallest things about nautical charts or wind direction, even sometimes making the judge and those watching the case laugh with his knowledge of the detail. He had visited the Rock Island Bridge and the surrounding area prior to the case. He traversed it by foot. He spoke to a boy whose father was the superintendent and knew the bridge well, and knew that the bridge did not, as the steamboat company claimed, change the current in any way. Did he win the case? Well, he got a hung jury, which for the railroad was a win. They had to pay no damages to the steamboat captain, exactly what the Rock Bridge Company and the Illinois Central wanted and needed to continue. Soon, there's going to be a heavy cattle car that will collapse the bridge. It'll be rebuilt. More bridges will be built across the Mississippi and the railroads will prosper. But this case in 1857, Lincoln's going to run for Senate in the next year and run for president two years later. He's putting him on the map. It's apparently on the train where Lincoln comes up with the idea that during his debate with Stephen Douglas, another railroad partisan and owner of land near railroad all around Chicago, that he will ask him a series of questions that will, if not lose the Illinois Senate election, they will make his ascension to the presidency impossible. It works at the Freeport debate, holding to territorial sovereignty over slavery, defending... In order to be intellectually consistent, the the position of a territory to ban slavery within its limits disappoints the South, who will deny him the nomination in 1860. The dream of a transcontinental railroad begins at least in print in New York. Asa Whitney, a New England merchant, argues that the whaling fleet in New Bedford will move wholesale to the Pacific a railroad is needed to keep the eastern states alive. Newspapers as early as the 1840s take up these ideas of Whitney. A railroad will create a race of free men, too. Citizens not dependent on local institutions. Railroad workers who, after finishing laying track all over the country, will settle in homesteads around the track about a transcontinental railroad. It's orthodox opinion in the 1850s that the American must go there. There is disagreement, of course, about where the line will be drawn, where the transcontinental railroad will be drawn. South to south, north to north, what parallel? And while it's true to say that railroads are a northern enterprise, southerners build railroads too. Sidney Blumenthal has an interesting take on this in his political history of Abraham Lincoln. Some historians have justified the compromise of 1850 because it gave the North 10 years to build its industrial strength, part of that railroads, and enable it to overpower the South when the war finally broke out. This, for instance, is argued by Robert Remini, who says that the South did not have a railroad system by which to move men and material to the areas where they were most needed. Rationalizing the actions of politicians on the basis of motives and thoughts, they did not have. And events that were not or could not be predicted, as though those debating the Compromise of 1850 were preparing for victory in the Civil War, is, according to Blumenthal now, an illogical omniscience. The facts present yet another difficulty. It was not just North and West that rose. While the South was hardly as industrially developed as the North over the coming decade, it was not an isolated pastoral ideal. One-third of the growth in the nation's railroad was in the South, largely built by slave labor, linking together the cotton kingdom and weaving it into the economies of New England and New York and London. More than three-quarters of southern railroads depended on slaves for operation. Railroads made possible the exponential increase in the value of cotton and slaves and strengthened the slave system measurably. Through the new technology, slavery became more intrinsic than ever to the unprecedented growth of international capitalism in the decade of the 1850s. The South supplied more than three-fourths of the cotton for the textile mills of England that employed perhaps a quarter of all English workers, and that was the basis of half of England's exports. The price of cotton rose continuously over the next decade, the 1850s, making the South the richest section of the country and its aristocracy the wealthiest. Southern slave-grown cotton was the nation's leading export. It powered textile manufacturing revolutions in both New England and Europe and paid for American imports of everything from steel to capital. In addition, the demand for labor in southwestern states like Mississippi, Louisiana, and Texas drove up slave prices and land values throughout the South. The spiraling value of slaves, translated financially into an almost limited source of collateral, mortgages, and derivatives, had a multiplier effect on Southern investments, including in railroads. Back to Whitman. Launched over the prairies wide, across the lakes, to the free skies up pent, and glad and strong. In its wake, the railroad changes the geographic and human landscape, and it creates things. It creates towns. The very small hamlet of Terminus, Georgia, 30 residents, has its name changed when a railroad is proposed there. The city of Atlantica Pacifica, named after the railroad company, serves its main purpose as a train connection to the city of Chattanooga, also a town greatly enhanced by railroad travel. Soon in the 1850s has 6,000 residents, a bank, newspaper, a freight car factory, a theater, and a medical college. It is the center of commerce from the South to the Midwest. The city of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania almost made irrelevant when the National Road bypassed it almost after the War of 1812. The city builds river bridges and a turnpike to Philadelphia and a canal. In 1835, it becomes a locomotive builder. The McClurg, Wade & Company of Pittsburgh builds the first. By 1851, Pittsburgh is connected to Cleveland by rail, and in 1854, to Philadelphia by rail. By 1857, it had 939 factories, 10,000 workers, 400 steam engines, and consuming 127,000 tons of iron. Far out west, and after the Civil War, a Union general saw in the short grass prairie with mountains of rock, so red the Spanish called it Amagre. He saw a good place to form a resort, and he founded Colorado Springs on the rail line. How could anyone look at these mountains and not be elevated to higher purposes? He built a hotel, gardens, and soon had so many tourists from the East, but also from Britain, that the town was nicknamed Little London. At the turn of the century, Catherine Lee Bates was so inspired by the summit of nearby Pikes Peak that she penned the song, America the Beautiful. New ways of living. You could now live away from the city center. Railroad suburbs are formed in various cities, including Pittsburgh, Chicago, New York. What was empty land could now be land used for different purposes. Where it may not have been as common for some villages that were or towns that were not near the water. The Erie Railroad, for instance, as early as 1840, builds a line across New Jersey from Jersey City right across the river from New York with the ferries coming. A New Jersey state senator who owns land in the area, John Rutherford, has some of his land, falls into the hand of a developer um, and landowner, Daniel Van Winkle. Daniel Van Winkle splits up lots of this land, sets up a town that's called Rutherford, donates land to the railroad for a station. And now you have a living area that's connected with a major railroad. And you could say as early as the 1870s. And it's kind of a funny thing. Now, Rutherford is with a URD. But by the time a post office opens in Rutherford, New Jersey, they spell it F-O-R-D. Well, Rutherford B. Hayes is the president. So there's some thought that maybe that's the reason for the change. One of many examples of railroad suburbs. You have the Western Edition neighborhood of San Francisco. Yonkers, White Plains, and New Rochelle are developed in New York entirely for... Living now made a reality with the with, with train lines. Radnor, Mawr, Villanova, off the main line in Philadelphia. Chicago has Riverside, Illinois, which is designed as a planned community. There are several of these. Nothing is more dangerous than assuming that all of society has the same opinion. We talked in the last episode about how Henry David Thoreau expounded on the rails as a negative force that every acre of land in America will be plowed over with steel. Charles Francis Adams, the son of John Quincy and contemporary to Lincoln, his diplomat to Great Britain, said that the railroad was an enormous incalculable force practically let loose suddenly on mankind. Before, it may have had time to consider questions. His life, just like Lincoln's, is immersed in the railroad, in the development of the railroad. By the time he dies in the 1880s, America will be a country where 200 million pounds of fruit and vegetables a year are shipped east from California. Nathaniel Hawthorne, seeing the railroad coming on, writes his own satire on the Pilgrim's progress, hints of a journey to hell with the passengers traveling by train. while other cities were trying to use this new railroad technology to leapfrog New York. New York City wasn't without its own railroad efforts. This from um, the excellent book, Gotham, A History of New York City to 1898 by Burroughs and Wallace. In May 1851, with great fanfare, President Fillmore and a party of civic notables boarded a steamer at the foot of Duane Street and chugged 20 miles upriver to the West Bank port of Piermont. There, the party transferred to a New York and Erie railroad car and proceeded to travel 447 miles to Dunkirk, a hamlet on the shores of Lake Erie. In a static common council hailed completion of the long-delayed line as emphatically the work of the age. Incorporated in 1832, the New York and Erie had not only survived the bankruptcy of most of its original backers, but its engineers and immigrants' labors had contrived to run a double track of six-foot gauge over a major mountain system. The economic significance of this linkage was manifest to all. Director William E. Dodge said, The Empire City and the Great West... The Atlantic Ocean and the Inland Seas are, by this ligature of iron, made one. A second force of engineers and laborers was driving the Hudson River Railroad within sight of Albany, having laid 144 miles of track along the bank of the Hudson. Like the Erie, the Hudson Line had overcome more than natural obstacles, including the opposition of powerful Hudson River steamboat operators. Roused by the threat of a rival road out of Boston, the legislature assented to a charter for the Hudson Line. By 1851, it was scooting passengers from New York to Albany in less than four hours, against a seven-and-a-half-hour ride-by-steamboat. By 1853, its passengers could transfer to a set of interconnecting roads that stretched all the way to Buffalo. Moreover, the Hudson Line ran directly into Manhattan. Its cars rolled down 11th Avenue to a massive depot covering the area between 30th and 32nd streets in the city. The arrival of the railroad on the city's west side, coupled with the increasing preference of steamships for the Hudson River docks, pulled vast numbers of dry-good merchants across town. By 1855, speeded by a city-engineered program of street widenings, some 200 warehouses had been erected many handsomely designed in the latest Italianate mode, with white marble or brownstone facades. Rents and prices doubled in three months, quickly driving out groceries and boarding houses. From the old worm of decay, exalted the Tribune, flutters forth the gorgeous butterfly of wealth and beauty. There can be little doubt that the railroad facilitated the Civil War, that it made it possible to move large amounts of troops. All through the war, important railheads, depots, stations are going to become strategic points in the battle. And it's very important for both sides to be disrupting rail communications and traffic. Here is from the American Railroad Journal of January 10, sixty three after reviewing the state of the northern economy and summarizing factors contributing to it. The result or present condition of commercial affairs is so far much more favorable than most of the sanguine venture to predict or even hope. Uh, the great test of national prosperity or soundness an abundance of all the necessities of life and an active employment of our population was never better fulfilled than during the past year this is eighteen sixty three during the war. The enlargement of the Erie Canal, completed in 1860, was a most opportune event. The value of this enlargement cannot be overestimated. There are now in the Loyal States 23,140 miles of railroad, costing $966 million. During that war, the Pacific Railroad dreamed about in papers of the 1840s now starts. More than ever, it's seen that it's time to unite the East and West. It's part of the 1860 platform, and the Republicans win the election, and they have control of Congress, and they start approving not only funds for the railroad, but also generous land grants that will allow bumper miles from where the track is that the railroad can both use for its purposes, to have land on either side of the track, you know, to do their work, and but also to sell to others and generate additional income. But Lincoln's not pleased with the slow progress on the railroad, especially on the railroad side from Missouri out to Utah, where they're going to link up with the Western Railroad, the Central Pacific. And so he asks Oliver Ames to get involved. Uh, The Ames family of Massachusetts is well-established in the shovel business, which is related to the railroad business since it involves the digging of railroad ditches. Oliver Sr. is known as the King of Spades. Railroad construction required good shovels, as did the gold mining in California, and the family makes a fortune in the 1850s. They're quite good at making shovels. They're quite good at the factory process and good at distributing their product along with the railroads they helped assist. Now, Ames Jr. is in Congress, and he is on the Committee of Railroads. He puts his family fortune into the Union Pacific Railroad and takes over by 1866. Three years later, he will complete his side of the railroad from Missouri to Utah. It will come after the president that assigned him the task is no longer there to see it. Booth's bullet sees to that. Yet Abraham Lincoln does one more favor for rail commerce his funeral train goes from Washington, D.C. to Springfield, New York and other cities along the way. There are crowds everywhere to see the funeral train. Lincoln is carried in a special Pullman car and the Pullman car will be made famous. No, Lincoln does not get to see that great moment in Promontory, Utah, May 10, 1869. But Alexander Topaz does see it. He's a beef contractor for the railroad. And he's there as Governor Sanford of California and Thomas Durant of the Union Pacific Railroad take turns pounding the Golden Spike. In the last 100 feet of railroad construction, as the two railroads were about to meet, Topin said, he grabs a shovel from an Irishman who is digging and shovels some dirt just to be able to tell about it afterward. It was a hilarious occasion, Topin said, due to the arrival of a train with supplies, including whiskey. And everybody had all they wanted to drink at the time. California furnished a gold spike, Nevada a silver spike. Governor Sanford picks up the hammer to drive the gold spike in, and he misses it. What a howl went up, Topan said. Everybody yelled with delight. He missed it. He, <laughs> he, The engineers blew the whistle and rang their bells. Then the governor hit again and this time tapped the spike and... The telegraph operator sent a signal to New York and to San Francisco so bells could go off in both cities and crowds could cheer there. The president of the Union Pacific then took the hammer and he too misses the spike and everyone laughed again and slapped everyone else. When the connection was made, the engineers of the Union and the Central Pacific Railroads ran their engines up until their pilots touched. Pictures were taken. Then there were speeches, Topin said, but I don't remember much of what was said. There was an abundance of champagne. Before the railroads, or in those areas that the railroads still didn't reach, which were many across a large country. One could get a coach. That's indeed how Mark Twain made his trip out west. He became a uh, unsuccessful miner and successful rider in Virginia City, Nevada. The Omaha Herald gave passengers a good indication of what a uh, ride would be like. Don't imagine for a second you are going on a picnic. Annoyance? Discomfort? If you are disappointed, thank heaven. Still, lines persisted, and the Overland Mail Company, for instance, had twice weekly service from San Francisco to Missouri. And the mail could get there from Missouri to that city in 25 days. Here's uh, Mark Twain's description of riding in a stagecoach an imposing cradle on wheel, drawn by six handsome horses, and by the side of the driver sat the conductor, the legitimate captain of the craft. We three were the only passengers. We sat on the back seat inside. About all of the rest of the coach was full of mail bags, for we had three days delayed mail with us. A perpendicular wall of mail matter rose up to the roof. There was a great pile of it strapped on top of the stage. We had 2,700 pounds of it aboard, the driver said, a little for Brigham, a little for Carson and Frisco, but the heft of it is for the engines." We guessed that his remark was intended to be facetious and to mean that we would unload most of our mail matter somewhere on the plains. We changed horses every ten miles, all day long. We jumped out and stretched our legs every time the coach stopped. And so the night found us still vivacious and unfatigued. The next day, the stage suffers a breakdown, forcing its passengers to evacuate while repairs are made. The conductor lays the blame for the mishap on the extra weight of too many mailbags. After throwing half the mail onto the prairie, Orion's large, unabridged dictionary causes trouble along the way. Orion is Mark Twain's brother. We began to get into the country now, threaded here or there with little streams. These had high, steep banks on each side, and every time we flew down one bank and scrambled up the other, our party got mixed somewhat. First, we would all lie down in a pile at the forward end of the stage, nearly in a sitting posture, and in a second we would shoot to the other end and stand on our heads. And we would sprawl and kick, too, and ward off ends and corners of mailbags that came lumbering over us and about us. And as the dust rose from the tumult, we would all sneeze in chorus, and the majority of us would grumble and probably say some hasty thing like, Take your elbow out of my ribs! Can't you quit crowding? Every time we avalanched from one end to the stage to the other, the unabridged dictionary would come, too, and every time it damaged somebody. One trip, it barked the secretary's elbow. That's his secretary's his brother. Uh, the next trip, it hurt me in the stomach, and the third, it tilted Benice's nose up till he could look down his nostrils, he said. The pistols and coins soon settled to the bottom, but the pipes, pipe stems, tobacco, and canteens clattered and floundered after the dictionary every time it made a, an assault on us and aided and abetted by the book by spilling tobacco into our eyes and water down our backs. Just one of the many stories. I have stories that are less funny from other passengers like that, referring to the the rattling of the stagecoach. They used a system of relay stations, uh, home stations where there would be a blacksmith, other horses, lodging, and small swing stations where... One could just change horses, stretch quickly, and get back on the line. Abilene, well, at this time a place with no name at all, was one of those home stations. It was on the north bank of the Sandy Hill River, Kansas. And the town, if you could call it a town of Abilene, the name for the city of the Plains in the Bible, a settlement was founded. It was the end of the Butterfield Overland stage line. And uh, Timothy and Eliza Hersey got a contract with the stagecoach line to feed the coach passengers and employees as they came through. They built two log houses here, a log stable, a corral for horses advertised as the last square meal east of Denver in the coach company advertisements. Soon, more people joined the Herseys A hotel was built, a general store, well, really Old Man Jones' house where he sold whiskey. It was easy because Congress had passed during the Civil War the Homestead Act, which allowed residents to acquire land, register with the land office, and develop it. Residents saw statehood for Kansas coming and quickly built more log houses in this settlement and laid out a plan. The legislature rewarded their efforts. Abilene became the seat of Dickinson, County, Kansas. By 1864, they had a post office and a real general store. But still it was described as a small dead place. One dozen log huts. Low small rude affairs, four-fifths of which are covered in dirt. Not one shingle. And then... In 1867, the Kansas-Pacific Railroad came to town. So did a Chicago livestock dealer who saw the potential. Joseph McCoy saw that Mud Creek, Sandy Hill River had lots of water and lots of grass around, great for cattle, and that railhead that was going to be built. McCoy put his own money in, built a stockyard and a hotel, the Drover's Cottage, and then he sent circulars, flyers out, all over Texas. The war had clamped down on the cattle industry. There were no markets east, but there were cattle breeding in Texas. There was a huge surplus, a quarter of a million cattle, that could not be sold locally. And at the same time, the Philip Armour meatpacking plant developed in Chicago. They needed constant supply, and they'd pay. What could get you $2 a head during the war? was now $40 in that Chicago market. $10 million market waiting to transact. In less than a year, the log cabin, tiny village, saw 35,000 cattle and also cowboys. They had fat wallets and they wanted to spend. They averaged you know, 16 to 26 years in age. This according to Joseph McCoy's own account. The cowboy would often imbibe too much poison whiskey and straight away go on the warpath. Mounting his pony, he's ready to shoot at anybody or anything, or rather than not shoot at all, would fire up into the air, all the while yelling, as only a semi-civilized being can. At such times, it is not safe to be in the streets, or for that matter within a house, for the drunk cowboy would soon shoot into the house as anything else. The July edition of the Topeka Commonwealth declared, At this writing, hell is now in session in Abilene. For the next couple of years, the Texan and the merchants of the Sin reigned Supreme in Abilene. But that would change. For years, Abilene became the center, the end of an, a cattle empire. And it brought craziness of the town, the amount of money in the town, and the rowdy characters in the town. Forced the town to bring in marshals to institute a no-gun policy to deal with crime. Among them, uh, Wild Bill Hickok. But just as fast as it had riveted, Abilene, Kansas declined. Other cities in Kansas, Dodge City, Caldwell, developed, and people were bringing cattle there. Disease spread um, across Kansas' cows, the locals. The Texas Longhorns were bringing in diseases that uh, the Kansas cattle had no immunity for. In two decades, Texas cattle would be banned from this part of the state of Kansas. The 520-mile herd drive was taxing, and all well and good in the lean and hungry post-Civil War days. But in Texas, residents were eager to drop the need to take to the rail. Uh, the small army post of Fort Worth saw an opportunity when a railroad came. So great was their vision that when the rail line wasn't connecting to the town, the citizens themselves completed a connection from Fort Worth to that rail line. 36 miles of track laid Fort Worth, usually the first stop for the drovers who are going on the way to Abilene, Kansas, now became the Abilene. Now became the railhead where cattle would be sold and shipped via the railroad. It was a gigantic operation. Twenty six hundred cattle pens, each holding twenty heads of cattle, is bigger than anything that Abilene could have dreamed of. So great did it become that Fort Worth became known. As the Wall Street of the West. And in 1902, great vaults were held in the city to hold all the money. The uh, Fort Worth Stockyards are still there. And every day, you can see a cattle parade if you're so inclined. Um, I have participated in that. The railroad did not make as many friends in the period after the Civil War as it had during the 1850s when it was inspiring poets. Many blows the railroad suffered, including scandal, depression, and violence. The first that, uh, blow that comes is there's this hotshot company that from 1867 to the early 1870s is the hot stock of the New York Stock Exchange, making absurd profits. And it's called Credit Mobilier. It's revealed in the articles of a newspaper, with a source being a disgruntled shareholder, to be owned by the same major shareholders and officers who own the Pacific, Union Pacific railroads. So the railroad was farming out a contract to itself with a markup and sending the bill to Congress to pay. Not only that, Credit Mobilier's company and the Union Pacific Company were gaining stock equity that they would not have had without the payments from Congress. In other words, the Transcontinental Railroad was a government project, but there wasn't yet established business on each part of that rail line. The market knew this. No businesses were built yet. No one lived out west. The only money came from the government contracts, and so the Credit Mobilier company receiving the contracts from the Union Pacific Railroad was a way of disguising the unprofitable business of the Union Pacific. Now it was a scandal, and Oliver Ames, previous hero of the Transcontinental Railroad, will become hoax Ames and will be censored by Congress. The Union Pacific, I mean, you you have to look at that transcontinental railroad as kind of the man-in-the-moon moment of the 19th century. Oddly, it happens 100 years before put a man on the moon in the 20th century. But now it's like NASA had filed for bankruptcy, right? The, the key railroad behind it is now filing for back bankruptcy. Stockholders in Credit Mobilier and in the Union Pacific are losing what they had but it's worse. It will turn out that several congressmen, deeply entrenched GOP House members, have been bribed in order to keep the scheme quiet. The lack of transparency and ownership as the same owners between the Union Pacific and Credit Mobilier. They will be bribed with stocks in Credit Mobilier, which are very valuable things. They are also bribed to vote for more funds for the Union Pacific Railroad, which will find its way in the very stocks that they own. This scandal, among others, during the grant presidency will end up in a change of party control of the House. The Democrats will take over the House in 1874 and investigate more and bring up more scandals. It'll also lead to a party split within the Republican Party, liberal Republicans and your regular stalwart Republicans and a popular vote for the Democratic Party candidate Samuel Tilden in 1876. It will also lead to disastrous results from the careers of many, including James Blaine, Speaker of the House.
1: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Where before there were poetic imagery about railroads or 1869 flyer that goes around where you just see the railroad whizzing by as everything else in the West is happy. There are Native Americans looking at this railroad. There are animals and bears and other critters in the distance and everyone's pleasant and happy. Now in 1873, you'll see cartoons of the railroad not with a Whitmanesque headlight in the front, but with an ugly face. And Cornelius Vanderbilt and other key industrialists riding the rail at the expense of everyone. Scandal's one thing, but pocketbooks are another. And the Panic of 1873, which can be attributed much to the railroad expansion caused by excessive speculation in railroads, which are going to end up going bankrupt. 18,000 businesses will fail during the Panic of 1873, or what's called the Long Depression in Europe or globally. Estimates of a million jobs are lost, iron and steel production down 45%. There's two things that happen. Railroad workers are unemployed, so there's a surplus of labor, and railroads are facing financial difficulties in operating so many clothes and so they're looking to cut wages The result will be fire Pittsburgh, July 23rd, 1877 From 7th Avenue along the railroad track nearly to 32nd Street a distance of about 2 miles the destruction of property is complete nothing remaining but indestructible material Passing along this long line of the fire, the scene presented a most desolate one. A three-story freight office was gutted while an adjoining freight depot and Adams Express building were in ashes. Of the huge grain elevator, a conspicuous feature of the junction of Grant, Liberty, and Washington streets, only the lofty smoke stack and fragments of the foundation walls remain, eastwardly to the outer depot, and for three square miles... Nothing remains of the hundreds of freight and passenger cars, but the wheels and other iron work. Men employed in working the rails, the trainmen, men, refused to work, refused to allow substitutes in, and refused to allow any mail traffic out. It was not something limited to Pittsburgh. Philadelphia, July 18, 1877 The Baltimore and Ohio Railway strikers are in full possession of the line at Martinsburg and westward to Ohio River on both branches, the strike having extended to Wheeling, Grafton, and elsewhere. All goods traffic is entirely stopped. Ridding Pennsylvania Large crowds gathered at the scenes of last night's affair about the same time several companies of the 4th Regiment marched down to Penn Street. All the troops then passed down Penn and out 5th Street, followed by the mob who fairly threw insults in the teeth of soldiers. Albany, New York. Strikers at West Albany say the troops cannot pass over the road. Oswego, New York. The freight trains on the Oswego and Syracuse Division of the Delaware, Lackawanna, and Western Railroad have been suspended. Buffalo, New York. An effort to get the workmen out of the principal manufacturing establishments utterly failed. A small flag bearing the words, We will let the mail go, is placed at several switches. St. Louis. The laborers at the Missouri Car Works in East St. Louis, who struck yesterday, went to work again today. Louisville, Kentucky. The Louisville and Nashville and Great Southern Route have been given into the strikers, and they have gone to work. Chicago. The strike of railroad hands has become general in Chicago. It was inaugurated last night by a strike among the switchmen, and this morning by the entire force of the road which joined them. Cincinnati. July 24th. The drunken rioters. Tired of their work, repaired to a point on the river road, sufficiently remote to secure them from police interference, this morning three of the ringleaders of this mob were arrested in jail. Columbus. The strikers visited the stockyards and beeline yards this morning and refused to allow them to leave. Indianapolis, Indiana. The situation here is practically unchanged, with the exception that women and children caught in the blockade are permitted to leave on the postal cars. The mayor had requested that saloons be closed, and many are complying. Springfield, Illinois. The governor today issued a proclamation, which, after reciting the troubles that are occurring in certain states, calls on the people to aid in maintaining peace. San Francisco. The city has been quiet, as usual here during the day, but there is visible a strong undercurrent of apprehension. In Pittsburgh, railroad officials told them to get back to work. They hurled insults. When the sheriff threatened to use force, they said, in not so many words, go ahead. And so the governor of Pennsylvania called the militia. And the militia attempted in a three-regiment action to push the men out of the area with bayonets. Before the military could even organize, there was a confused scene. And there were many more rioters, strikers, mobs, and even some observers, families of strikers, than had been anticipated. The line between where the military was and where the mob was began to blur. Here's this according to the commander in testimony later. I told them they must leave the tracks. A large crowd was congregating, standing on the cars. There was in the neighborhood of 1,000 to 2,000 railroad cars sitting there laden with goods. We pushed on, headed by the sheriff and his posse. When we got to 28th Street, there was a dense mass of humanity, men, women, children. I could not see where my subordinate colonels were. I went out to find them. The crowd, as they saw me, pointed me out, hurled insults, hurled threats, and said things only a low man would say. The mob pushed through our lines and struck one of our soldiers with his fist. I grabbed the man and pointed him out to the sheriff. This is a man who will make trouble. You must arrest this man. Finding my other regiments, I found that many of the other troops had dispersed, laid down their arms, or left. I found the tracks in Pittsburgh occupied. The troops outnumbered, and I went to the telegraph office to ask for reinforcements. As I did, it must have been the sound of the telegraph. It must have been the steam from the train cars. I could not hear, but there was a large disturbance. My first sign that something had gone on is looking out the window and I had seen a young boy being carried off on a stretcher. I was told that that boy had just fainted given the heat and the humanity of the moment. But then I saw several other dead and wounded, being carried away. Then I got my first report. There was musket fire. The mob had rocks, pieces of iron, and pistols, and they were hurling it at the troops as they moved forward with bayonet. The militia volleyed without orders and cleared the tracks. The men, tired, then took refuge in the roundhouse, where the most valuable railroad property was held. They set up their artillery and two Gatlin guns, but orders were never given to use these Gatlin guns on the mob because of the fear that it would just lead to more violence that would lead to deaths of innocence and more violence. Though many of the men in the roundhouse were urging them to use it. Supplies were cut off and by dark, all the windows were shattered and two sentries were shot. Soon the roundhouse was set on fire, and the militia was forced in a retreat, a retreat while being shot at by various pistols and rocks hurled at them. Pittsburgh was exceedingly violent, and 61 people would die in 1877 there, the most violent of all cities. So violent that uh, some of what I'm reading comes from a House report, because the House of Representatives uh, special committee sat in the Orphan's Court in Pittsburgh to gather all the witnesses they locally they could to find out just what had happened. Once the military retreated from Pittsburgh, strikers set fires that raised 39 buildings and destroyed rolling stocks. 104 locomotives, 1,245 freight and passenger cars were destroyed. You know, how could they pull off something like the Great Strike of 1877, even not successful? How did all that occur in They didn't just start organizing in 1876. In reality, the system of organization among trainmen began during the time of the Civil War. As early as 1864, train engineers were organizing. Uh, In Hornellsville, New York, a small town but a big railroad, important railroad junction, we have that the engineers here organized as early in 1864, though some organization may have preceded even that as evidenced by strikes there in 1854 and 1856. They possessed a hall, met weekly, and provided for members beneficial and social needs. Conductors there organized in 1874, firemen in 1876, and local firemen held major national offices for the first three years of the National Brotherhood. Really it was established. From this area the railroads became within a few decades the largest employer outside of agriculture and required large amounts of capital investment to keep going. Thus, the risk speculators fed large amounts of money into the railroad industry. abnormal growth was caused overexpansion perhaps one of these capitalists, Jay Cook, found that his firm went bankrupt like so many other banking firms because a disproportionate share of depositors funds were invested into railroads. The overexpansion of the railroads is seen as a key cause of the site. It's also creates the nexus for this very action of strike to develop. Um, and things happen on both sides as a result of 1877. Union organizers, Organize more. Many, on the other hand, politicians develop new statutes, conspiracy statutes, to prevent such organization. New militia units are formed in states. National Guard armories are established near industrial cities now. This is the first real general strike. It's not confined to a local area. And it cannot happen without the communication system developed by the telegraph and the and the railroad the knights of labor grow to be a national organization after this numbering 700,000 by the early 1880s and the 1880s we'll see more strike actions nearly 10,000 actions lockouts in response in 1886 there'll be another general strike 700,000 workers going on strike by the 1890s there'll be more Railroad strikes, the Pullman strike, we're discussing the railroads today, but in the railroad, you're also seeing the connection of interstate, of true national business and everything that comes with that commerce, including the actions of workers doing the work. It was a railroad scam you might say early spam makers of manufactured goods would send products to retailers via the railroad that they had not ordered uh, or they'd send them more than they actually ordered and hope that they didn't return them when the manufacturer contact when the retailer contact them hey i didn't order this want to return it's like okay well look, for us to save shipping costs, why don't you just uh, take this discount on the item and keep it? In reality, the discounted price was the actual price of the item. But a jeweler, Edward Sturgerson of Chicago, knew better, and he refused the shipment of watches that came to him, and they sat in the office of the North Branch, Minnesota office, of the Minnesota and St. Louis Railroad. And it caught the eye of an enterprising young man, a telegraph operator, who told the wholesaler, wait, the retailer won't take this back. Give me a discount and I'll sell them. Now, It's a telegraph operator, right? So which one is this, uh, Carnegie? Is this uh, Edison? No, it's yet another one. (laughs) There are several. uh, I told you, these are the entrepreneurs, high-tech entrepreneurs of the 19th century, telegraph operators. Richard Sears hits it big. Watches are something that bring a look of sophistication in the 1880s, urban sophistication. Someone who has it together, they know what time it is. And he'll sell those watches, many of them to other telegraph operators. Two years later, he sets up a printed mailer selling watches with a six-year guarantee. The mailer was blazoned with the words, R.W. Sears and Company. That's no threat during the 1880s. After all, you know, retailers and department stores were well established in various cities, and so are various general stores out west. And Sears is only selling watches. But before Sears printed his mailer, he did something else. He placed an ad. For somebody who could fix watches. Alva Roebuck, a frail man from Lafayette, Indiana, was not very good at business. He didn't have the salesmanship that Richard Sears had. He fretted about details. But he knew how to fix watches. Was good timing. I mean, you need to watch really because of the railroad, and it is really something that requires it because you have to be at the station at the right time for the train to be there. And so important was time to the railroads that in 1883, railroads form the General Time Convention, where they actually change time in the United States forever, establishing the eastern, central, mountain and pacific time zones. Noon in 1883, November 18th, 1883 at noon, the U.S. Naval Observatory sends a telegraph signal noting that the time is 12 noon, the official time. This doesn't become law until 1918 during World War I, but with so many railroads enforcing it, it is the most time zones become important for commerce. The locomotive is the most obvious form of changing of motion, and it can do it in a place where for centuries it wasn't as possible on land. Changing of position trains are pretty commonplace in American. You know, if you take people like Abraham Lincoln, Edgar Allan Poe, Charles Darwin, um, Louis Braille, Kit Carson, you know, all born 1809, they're going to look at the train, at the locomotive as some way, probably like Bill Clinton or Al Gore, you know, looked at the internet. Right? Um, Something new in their lifetimes, but also an opportunity and something they embraced and were behind. For Lincoln and Kit Carson, they're going to reach a time where it's certainly readily available, particularly in the North, where the effects of the railroad are clear. You know, for Edgar Allan Poe and for Lewis Braille, the railroad is there for them. But it's it's slower in its development. It's just at the time of their death. It's just at the beginning, and for um, someone like Charles Darwin, he's actually reaching a point where the technology has really reached its its significance. And so, you know, I think you're seeing the train of something like a it's cell phones today. By the time you're getting to the 1880, you know, in the 1860s, most northern cities are connected by rail, and it's there. By the 1880s it's just part of life it's the cell phones you know um to just like now we're starting to see people rail against some of the big tech companies there's no longer this kind of youthful amazement at facebook and twitter and things like that isn't it amazing we can all talk to each other you know we we should think about it sometimes i I will, you know, look at what I'm doing here. I'm talking to you just as hundreds thousands of other people can do with their casts, but put that aside. So by the 1880s, you know, this is this is common. And when we think about that, there's a larger concept and that's simply speed that has changed the 1880s, the 1890s. See a movement towards this. Voluntary or not, and there's competition for instance, between Britain and Germany for the building of fleets of great new battleships. And just like development in military and space tech go-consumer, you know, the Tang effect, so did things back then. So when the German steamer Kaiser Wilhelm de Gross beat a British ship, a civilian ship, for the record in crossing the Atlantic Ocean, the British were on a mission and put government resources behind it and built a new ship the Lusitania. It could reach 25 knots, and by 1907, it beat the record. But the White Star Line figured they'd do something really special with the Titanic, and they pushed its captain to higher and higher speeds, never mind the fog, never mind the ice. But focusing on these two infamous ships may occlude the point that we're making here. It's not just about a few reckless Companies or aggressive countries. For one of the Titanic's survivors, for instance, writing an article afterwards, he felt the public was to blame. Everyone was pushing for faster voyages, quicker trips, and this is what we got. A Chicago bishop warned against the insane desire for speed. George Bernard Shaw and Joseph Conrad are among the writers at this time condemning reckless speeds. A popular novel produce... A popular novel predicts a giant ship that is so advanced it was unsinkable. But it would end in disaster. And that ship's name was Titan. And the novel was written in 1898, years before the sinking of the more famous non-fiction ship. Despite these critics speed was just part of the culture in the 1890s. Everything had to be faster. And reading the excellent Stephen Kerns, The Culture and Time and Space, a book that I've I read often in between podcasts and haven't gotten much of a chance to talk about on one of the casts. We find that people were warned of getting bicycle face because in the 1880s bright bikes with pneumatic tires were built. These bikes were faster than the old models. People were moving faster than ever before. A popular novel about bicycling talks about a new world as a couple goes on a bicycling trip. No one had seen the French countryside this fast as the perception voyage that a fast bike could deliver. The bike is not two things like man and horse. It is the body with faster legs. In that French novel, the two couples that go on the trip in the countryside are just changed by the speed. They don't see the world in the same way. And they end up swapping wives and husbands. Well, it's a French novel after all. 3,000 automobiles are in France by 1902. And we'll see see, automobiles. Be all the rage in the arts. Still, there are laws on the books. and In Britain, the law... To give you the sense of the old world, the law had limited any vehicle to four miles per hour, any vehicle. And if there was an automobile and there was a man on foot, the man on foot must lead. That was repealed in 1904 for a 20 mile an hour limit. A German historian noticed something about the 1890s too. More watches were being worn. Richard Sears had discovered this much to his happiness in the 1880s. Twelve million in Germany were imported. That's a lot. And now time mattered. Five minutes mattered. At work, stopwatches were used to time tasks to make factory workers go faster. These techniques led to faster millwork, better building, new brick scaffolding techniques, and a new term, the speed boss, whose job it was to ensure that the golden commodity of time was not wasted. We talked about in the last cast about the development in the beginning of the first American true factories where everything's being done in one place where tasks are divided. Well, now we're taking a closer look at perfecting it. We're, we're 50 years or more beyond that. Now we're trying to perfect it. Now, making sure that each worker is not just doing one task, but doing it quickly according to the clock and measuring it, not just when they come in the morning, though that certainly is measured more harshly now than ever before. But how they're performing each task and reminding them and correcting them and having managers come over to correct their performance. It's not entirely bad, though in most cases it is, I think, for, for that worker, because there are some theories out there that you also have to remember to give workers their time off. So even that's being measured more than better be, than ever before. But you can bet most employers weren't thinking about it that way. There's a new development. The watchbook. Because some managers who are speed bosses are realizing that if they're holding their watch there and people are looking at them, it's going to, you know, decrease the morale in the factory. Well, all you have to do is bury the watch within a book. So it just looks like you're looking at a book and taking notes. Not at all intimidating. This quest for speed is reaching the art too. I mean you're seeing the beginning of movies, you're seeing and the movies initially are trying to shock audiences with really neat stuff because it's what they have. They don't have great dialogue yet. So you see like a cable car coming right at you in some of these films, watching Niagara Falls and the fast water moving. Painters such as Umberto Boccioni, he's capturing this. There's futurism where You're seeing, if you look at Boccioni's dynamism of a soccer player, you see the foot, the ball, the motion is all one, captured as stationary object. And it's amazing. In music, ragtime, a new form of syncopations developing in Mississippi, taking off everywhere in America and Europe. Scott Joplin changes rhythm in his maple leaf rag. Walter Lippman says, we make love to ragtime and we die to it. Henry Adams rages against the speed in 1907. We are all now irritable, anxious, we're afraid. Even in this steampunk world, the overload of trains, underground trades, pneumatic mail tubes, the churn of motor vehicles, elevators, ticking watches, just too much. But far be it for me to make too much of a connection between this need for speed and the politics of the time. But I do think, and it's, and it's not my philosophy can beat up your politics or something like that. It's not a history of a philosophy. But I do think it's not hard to see that the speed that came out of commerce, that was all about commerce in the beginning is now stretching into art and yes, into philosophy. Because if I can move quickly, that's going to increase My ability to understand that things can be relative. Nietzsche says it immediately, and he's not the only one who has thoughts in this direction, that there are no more subjects. We can't think of an eye that is not moving, turned in a particular direction. That doesn't exist. The active and interpreting forces are there that make seeing mean something. There's only perspective seeing. Can you go too far with that? Does it mean an end of selfishness in America? No, it does not. In fact, it could be leading to a new consumerism. That's what Richard Sears hoped for. And so in 1897, hundreds of thousands of mailers would have arrived to various homes with consumer's guide number 104 from Sears Roebuck and Company, the cheapest supply house on earth. Our trade reaches around the world. Big picture of the globe there. The policy of the house with a picture of Lady Justice next to it. It is the policy of our house to supply the consumer everything on which we can save him money. Money, goods that can be delivered at your door anywhere in the United States for less than they can be procured from your local dealer. We aim to illustrate honestly and correctly every article. We employ no agents. Our terms are alike to all. Our employees are instructed to treat every customer at a distance exactly as they would like to be treated along with instructions about our prices, about our reliability, our terms, freight shipments, mail shipments, how to order. Fill out closely all the blank spaces on our order sheet as shown in filled out sample order blank on page 9. And if you do not have an order sheet, closely follow these instructions. Write your name clearly and distinctly on any piece of paper. Many people forget to sign their name. In such case, the order has to be held till the consumer complains. Give your post office name, also street address, shipping point, and then say what country and state say from what catalog ordered, and always give the catalog number and price of each article wanted. This is the 1897 Sears Roebuck and Company catalog. I have it in my hands. It is giant with the index. It is 786 pages. And where does it begin? With coffee, of course. Where else? Crushed Java coffee, chicory and coffee essence, special blends, coffees green and roasted, coca shells, coca, pure ground spices, pepper, black, pepper, double sifted, allspice, cloves, ginger, Jamaica, African ginger, mace, nutmegs, canned vegetables, succotash, white wax beans. Pumpkin, lima beans, Illinois corn, tomatoes, best grade, plum puddings, can openers, jelly tumblers, mason fruit jars, stove polish, a full and lasting luster, rag soap, biggest cake and best value for the money order, syrup and molasses. We sell syrup and molasses at lowest wholesale prices. Just think, you can buy five gallons of syrup, keg and all for about one dollar. The Drug Department Nerve and Brain Pills Rheumatic Cures Dr. Barker's Blood Builder Nature's Most Wonderful Remedy For Destroying Poisons in the Blood And Building Up a Pure Healthy Blood No Matter How diseased the System Is Tobacco Habit Cure Liquor Habit Cure System Builder and Lung Restorer Orange Wine Stomach Bitters Here's one Universal Wolf Tooth Forceps for Extracting Wolf Teeth. Length, 9 inches. Machine bolts, stove bolts, flathead stove bolts, lag screws, iron washers, carriage bolts, blacksmith billows, anvils, bench drills, pipe vise, gas pliers, bargains in men's coats and vests with odd pants to match, bicycle suits, men's smoking jacket. The finest quality material here's what the people say dear sears roebuck and company dear sirs the clothes are at hand and are perfectly satisfactory i thank you for your promptness and honesty and i will do all i can for you gents i received the clothes the 28th okay they are a good fit i am more than pleased with them i think you will hear from me again Brownie suits for children, special bargains for boys from 4 to 14 years of age. Always state age of boy and say whether large or small of his age. Do we have hats? Why, of course we do. Many men have many notions. We have a notion that you will like our hats, if you will, but try them. Driving hats, USA Cavalry hats, Grand Army hats, the Citizen's hat, Pasha hats, the bike hat, buckskin felt sombrero. The National Flag, made of all wool bunting, popular fiction, in special binding, the most readable works of the best authors, all bound handsomely, open circuit batteries, electric bell outfits, dry batteries, call annunciators. Call annunciators are arranged with bell, complete, and have a hand which points to the number indicating the portion of the house or other place from which the call originated, also used for burglar alarm purposes bizarre pocket camera the cheapest camera ever sold even though this little instrument is offered for less than a dollar it is a complete and practical working camera the case is covered with a black leatherette which is most excellent imitation of morocco the demand we have for telephones has so largely increased of late we have been induced to give the matter special attention the improved long distance battery telephone of the regular bell telephone style with a solid oak or walnut case our one hundred and twenty-five dollar piano, a regular three hundred dollar instrument. Hopkins and Allen automatic hammerless double action revolver. Consider our price and our cash discount, our three percent. Also, our liberal terms and the fact that this revolver will be sent by mail on receipt of twenty-two cents. And for when going hunting, how about an oil-tanned horsehide suit? Tennis bats and rackets, tennis balls, boxing gloves. This glove is made of the best-select French kid. Football inflators. Baseball mitts. Baseball is two words. Fencing gloves. Whitley Exercisers. The Whitley Exerciser consists of a pure gum cable, many strands, covered to protect it from the weather, with adjustable handles and swiveled attachments, running over three... Absolutely noiseless and adjustable cone bearing pulleys, so arranged as to be readily suspended in various positions on small hooks attached to the door jamb. Here's what it says in introduction to this uh, book, which was put together uh, by Chelsea House Publishers. Again and again through this 700 diverse pages, the reader is exhorted, sought, entreated and begged to take advantage of the bargains clogging the warehouses in Chicago. And the pros these appeals are crouched in provides an interesting contrast with today's merchandising methods. There is, for example, the sexy approach, typified by this appeal. We are naming such prices as will bring out many a dollar that has been hidden away in a stocking. Then there is the fiscal ploy, inspired, no doubt, by the current activities and the current politics. This This is coming out in 1897. You just had the 1896 election. You can talk about free silver and free gold, but wherever high prices prevail, there is little freedom of any kind of money. It's such prices, as are named in this book, that loosens the money market. Uh, Yeah, Sears catalog taking a little bit of the uh, McKinley side in that argument. (laughs) But... um, Yeah, and they go further. It's safe to say that we are doing more for the farmer or laborer than all the political demagogues in the country. The economy of any man's life resolves itself into a judicious expenditure of what money he has. There's an argument to be made there, and this is one of the reasons I'm discussing uh, the commercial history of the United States, so to speak, in the Ark of Commerce series. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I mean... At one hand, what's a Sears catalog doing? It's just somebody trying to make some money and they figured out a clever way to do it that worked for a lot of people. But I I think also you look at and you think about it and what was the situation of an average person before such a catalog and operation existed, right? What was their life like and how was it improved by this service? One of the things I didn't have time to talk about is the... Uh, Woolworth stores, which is a similar premise, starting at a similar time where they're starting these five and cent stores across the country. And a big innovation that we don't even, we just take for granted today is that prices were named. And in the Sears catalog, it's the same. Prices are named. So you know what you're getting. If you went to a department store in 1880s, 1890s, very often you were going to find that you're dealing with a sales representative they're going to name a price it could be different from the person before them you don't see the prices you're not shopping you're being sold to and many people didn't like this and so it's in both retailers Sears and and Woolworth um, I think you see that yes you know political causes um, you know can lead to to better life for people um, but there's also commercial factors too. And something like an innovation in that business, like a Sears catalog, provided changed lives. You know, provided more freedom, more happiness and quotes, you know, and things. There could be other issues. People maybe spent too much. They could have driven um smaller businesses out they were in, to some extent the sears system was using uh, freight rates that in some areas might be made artificially cheap so they're using a bit of free riderism so there's all sorts of uh issues and problems that you see in that at the same time uh, great service one of the items in the sears catalog was the edison phonograph
1: Uh, now Mr. Blaine as you've been around the world, I think you're the world on the photograph. not
0: This is from Alfred o. Tate, Thomas Edison's associate and private secretary. On one of these occasions, when I was sitting beside him, he passed a clipping over to me in which was referred to as a scientist. And then he said, That's wrong. I'm not a scientist. I'm an inventor. I'll take
1: you on this keeper and
0: Faraday was a scientist. He didn't work for money. Said he didn't have the time. But I do. I measure everything I do by the size of a silver dollar. Edison was not a mathematician. He had a method of his own of solving mathematical problems. His lack of knowledge of the science never seemed to be a handicap. His mind seemed to be alight on the answer in one swift flight which perhaps he himself could not explain. I recall one of Edison's empirical experiments. He wanted to find a solvent of hard rubber. Science had not discovered it. Theory was helpless, so he resorted to empiricism. He had a storeroom of scientific chemicals that was complete. He immersed in vials containing one of each of these chemicals, a small section of hard rubber. I do not recall how many there were, but it was an impressive collection. Later on, I asked him how the experiment had turned out. I got it, he
1: said. On February 19th,
0: 1878, Edison is granted a patent for a device he calls the phonograph. It's in a work session in July of 1877. He wants to develop a machine that can record telegraph messages. Okay, so he has done many innovations to the telegraph. He has been able to do tickers through the telegraph. He certainly doesn't invent the telegraph. That's before his time. He doesn't operate the telegraph. He does invent a four multiplex sending two signals forward and two signals back at the same time. He, He invents that. Now he wants to record telegraph messages. They're stuck on their progress to make this machine. They record those telegraph clicks. ...onto paper strips. Then, on a the summer evening... ...during a brainstorming session... ...Edison threw out the idea... ...perhaps a voice. If we're going to record clicks, maybe a human voice can be recorded. After all, Alexander Graham Bell had patented the telephone already. This is not something Edison events. Edison proposed attaching a needle to the back of a diaphragm in a telephone. And then that needle would inscribe the vibrations created by talking onto a moving strip of paper. They shifted their efforts, and within an hour, had a device. Speaking slowly, Edison recited, Mary had a little lamb into the mouthpiece. When they pulled the paper tape back across the needle, they heard... I, I did, I, speaking through the mouthpiece, they were close. The first midnight recording session lasted until dawn as Edison's team worked on various configurations. They replaced the paper strip and rollers with tin foil wrapped around a cylinder, and Edison thought there might be a commercial opportunity to sell his phonograph as a dictation machine that businesses could use. He demonstrated the invention to editors from Scientific American magazine in December 1877. The resulting article prompted demand for it, and he created one of many Companies by the turn of the century, they're going to have to try to consolidate all of these Edison companies, the Edison speaking phonograph company, with investors. But it takes about 10 years until Emil Berliner, German immigrant living in Washington, invents a disc recording system, the gramophone. The Sears catalog is published up until 1993, and in 1994. Sears sells its iconic building in Chicago. That same year marks another moment. The first sale of a book on a website called Kadabra.com. Soon to become Amazon. What became of Alva Roebuck? Well, He sold out in 1895 and gave Sears the right to use his name. I do hereby give the said Sears, Roebuck & Company Corporation full right, authority, and privilege to use said name of Roebuck in their corporate name. And for that, he got $25,000. A fair amount of money in those days. He didn't like the seven-day work week that uh, Richard Sears could put in. He did later become president of typewriter company and got involved in motion pictures and did, you know, fairly well. Richard Sears retires in 1909, dies in 1914. Others take over the company. Roebuck, unfortunately, gets involved in some Florida real estate and loses most of his money in the 20s. He's forced to go back to the company that he started with. Sears, Roebuck, and company now owned by other people. But they employ him as a kind of traveling morale booster. He goes to visit stores throughout the Great Depression and writes a history of Sears. He dies in 1948 but one thing he says is Sears made $25 million, and now he's dead. Me? I've never felt better.